Welcome to another episode of Electrify This, a podcast focused on electrification as a primary pathway to decarbonize and revitalize our economy. Each month, I connect with experts to explore the policy and market issues underpinning the shift to electrified transportation, buildings, and industry. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, Senior Director of Electrification with Energy Innovation. Today's episode, States in the EV Driver's Seat. In the last episode of Electrify This, we explored the impact of new federal policies, namely the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act, on the U.S. electric vehicle market, which is on the move and slated for exponential growth in the coming decades. We also touched on the fact that states have been longtime leaders in the transportation electrification space, and more states than ever before are taking action to accelerate transportation electrification with the adoption and implementation of favorable policies, regulations, and new programs. So in today's episode, we're going to take a closer look at what states are doing to support robust EV markets, attract the EV supply chain, and ensure more equitable EV access. We'll also explore which state policy combinations are having the greatest impact and supporting consumer adoption of cleaner cars and trucks. And we'll talk with a state legislator from Nevada who will share his insights on the world of state policymaking, the challenges and opportunities that policymakers face when working to advance clean transportation, and what the state of Nevada is doing to move EVs forward. So today, I'm pleased to introduce my two esteemed guests for the show today. First, we have Peter Huther, a senior research associate with the transportation program at the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, or ACEEE, where he does research and analysis on light-duty fuel efficiency in electric vehicles, as well as equitable access to EVs. He was a lead author of the 2023 State Transportation Electrification Scorecard, which we'll talk about today, and he also leads analysis on the life cycle emissions of light-duty vehicles for ACEEE's greenercars.org. So, Peter, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And we also have Assemblyman Howard Watts of District 15 of Nevada. Uh, Howard has been in the Nevada Assembly since 2018 and has dedicated his career to advancing policies that preserve the environment, protect consumers, and ensure dignity for historically marginalized communities. In his time as a legislator, he's successfully passed laws to improve water conservation, fight climate change, expand voting access and civil rights, protect public lands, and promote racial equity. And when he's not legislating in Nevada, he owns and operates a small public relations business. So Howard and Assemblyman Watts, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Well, it is great to have you both on the show, and I'm really excited for this topic. States have been leading the way on many things for many uh, years, and EVs surely has been one of the um, areas of of growth thanks to state leadership. So let's get started with the conversation. Peter, I'm going to start with you. Uh, I'd love to have you tell us a little bit more about the State Transportation Electrification Scorecard and why ACEEE put out the scorecard and uh, some of the key findings from the most recent report. Sure, happy to. So this is uh, the second edition of our state transportation electrification scorecard, first one coming out in 2021. It looks across the whole country at what states are doing along a variety of policy areas to accelerate transportation electrification in their states. It looks at what do they do to plan for EVs? How are they incentivizing EVs and EV chargers? How are they taking the whole system, the whole transportation system into account? 
you know, what are utilities doing? And then what are the outcomes that we're actually seeing? Um, so we, this came about because, as you said, states are doing a lot to electrify their transportation systems. And there's a lot of work to do um, across a lot of different areas. And so we thought um, it was useful to get a good idea of what states are doing, how they compare to each other, and where there needs to be areas of improvement. Um, and so for the 2023 scorecard, um, we found that relative to the 2021 edition, um, there's been some incremental uh, improvements, but not necessarily transformational improvements. Um, we found that only nine states are getting more than 50 points. Um, and with California being number one, which may not come as a surprise to many, um, with New York and Colorado being second and third. Um, but we are seeing, we are still seeing a lot of work being done. Um, and across the country, there's, you know, a lot of states are adopting California's standards, ACT, ACC2 and ACT, which I can get into more later. Um, there's a lot around the planning processes. There's a lot of states with plans. Um, obviously, utilities are also doing a lot as to prepare for and as well as to accelerate transportation electrification. Um, and then states are really taking advantage of federal funding to to promote EVs in their state. And as we've seen with, you know, lots of money coming from the federal government for chargers, obviously for incentives as well, um, for manufacturing, um, et cetera. Um, and so, yeah, there's been, you know, there's been good work, um, but there still needs to be, you know, a lot more work, especially um, with so many states um, not even being ranked in our scorecard because they've kind of scored too low. Um, Nevada not being one of those though, unfortunately. Yeah, I noticed there were a handful of states that uh, did not receive scores, and so I assume that was because there just wasn't sufficient activity to to merit a score. Um, and we do have Assemblyman Watts here today with us, so uh, maybe talk a little bit about how Nevada fared in the scorecard. Sure, yeah, I'm happy to. Um, uh, happy to the discussion. But yeah, so Nevada scored pretty well. It did 13th. Um, this is an improvement um, of one rank, they scored 14th in our last edition, um, as well as a slight improvement in score to 38 and a half points. Um, I think Nevada is laying a lot of the good groundwork to for widespread transportation electrification in the state, um, and certainly doing well in a region that has historically done fairly well. So that's that's good. Um, we've we noted that there was a. a good amount of activity on the utility side, especially in Nevada. So um, there's lots of different rates for EVs, which really help optimize the grid for EVs so that they're charging at the appropriate time and that um, people are spending, you know, not too much to charge. Um, but that also Nevada actually had the high, the third highest um, per customer utility spending on EV investments. Um, it was 91 million overall. Um, but about $46 per customer, which is third in the country. Um, and then obviously we can get into it more, but there's a lot of um, manufacturing side stuff happening in Nevada. So um, it, we're happy to see them complementing that work with some of the some of the policies to help, um, you know, the drivers in the state make sure that they can have access to EVs and that they're being able to charge when they need to. That's great. And, and Assemblyman Watts, I'd love to have you you know, quickly respond to to the scorecard score and anything that you noted from the transportation scorecard. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm really pleased with our high ranking across, uh, you know, among the states. And yeah, you know, I, I will say the one thing uh, I believe that this 2023 scorecard 
um, was put together while we were in our last legislative session in 2023. And so I am uh, just, to, I, I'm upset that I have to wait maybe two more years to get the next scorecard because I think um, we did some additional policy during this latest legislative session that probably would have maybe would have bumped us up a little higher, definitely would have increased our grade and might have might have uh, got us up in the rankings uh, another uh, spot or two. So, you know, I, I think overall this scorecard shows uh, the commitment that we have in the state of Nevada to uh, really make gains in transportation electrification. That's great. Yeah. And we can talk a little bit more about some of those policies and some of the more recent developments um, here in just a minute. But um, Peter, I want to continue to examine more of the scorecard and some of the criteria. There are several categories and you've mentioned them, but what what would you say are the most important or heavily weighted criteria in the scorecard and why? Sure. So the biggest policy area that we looked at that got the most number of points was incentives, um, which got 36 points out of 100, um, followed by outcomes. So just you know how many EVs are on the ground, how many chargers there are, how many electric school buses, transit buses, et cetera. Um, and then system efficiency actually was number three, which is looking at what are states doing t- uh, to reduce emissions across the broad transportation sector, so not just on, you know, personal passenger vehicles and the like. Um, And we weighted the policy areas this way, uh, and this was done in the last edition as well, based on our review of just the literature um, and speaking with other experts. um, We have a panel or an advisory group that that, um, weighs in on this. um, And we felt that these were the areas where um, the research is saying that the, these policies are having the biggest impact on on transportation electrification. I mean, I think it's pretty clear to many what the impact that incentives can certainly have, um, especially um, to promote electr- transportation electrification, to get chargers, uh, you know, invested in and placed um, where they need to be. Um, and so, our our literature found that our literature review found that um, you know. EV mandates, financial incentives, um, and incentives for charging infrastructure were the three biggest policy areas that impacted, um, and so those got the most the most points. Of course, we still have, you know, planning and grid optimization um, were other key areas, um, and then equity is kind of built throughout, um, which was is a change from our last edition. Yeah, and we'll talk a little bit more about that piece. Um, so when you say EV mandates, uh, I'm assuming that is referring to the state adoption of advanced clean cars 2 and advanced clean trucks, which you mentioned, ACC2 and ACT are the sort of uh, the wonky acronyms that we use in the transportation world. But uh, can you talk a little bit more about those policies, why they're important, and why they are uh, such an important policy component to high scores? Sure. So these two standards, as you mentioned, they're, you know, come from California, but um, the Federal Clean Air Act allows any other state to adopt them. Um, this is sometimes referred to as 177 states because of the part of the Clean Air Act that, uh, that allows this. Um, and they're standards that are really setting, you know, the groundwork for, you know, widespread adoption of EVs with, you know, at advanced clean cars too, leading to full electrification, full 100% of new sales being electric um, by 2035, um, which is just very powerful um, as a tool in states. Obviously, you know, 
states that adopt this will have to meet the standards and, you know, automakers will need to sell EVs in those states to, to meet those standards. But even more importantly, um, more and more states adopting them means that it's an even, you know, stronger market signal that, you know, EVs are the future. That's where the market is going. You know, automakers need to invest in that. The manufacturing base needs to happen. The chargers need to be built. You know, there's often the chicken and egg issue with, you know, charging companies might not want to charge if the EVs aren't going to be there. But standards like this really allow for them to have more certainty to make those types of investments. Um, and it's also important for many states um, to adopt these standards so that they can have, you know, a wide variety and number of EVs at dealerships available for consumers. Um, that's another a strong impact. So we've waited um, both of these, adopting both of these standards in full um gives states four points each. So it's a pretty, you know, sizable chunk um, of the of the standards. Um, I would also say that in addition to those two, we also scored around states having requirements for transit and school bus electrification. Um, so those are other mandates that are, you know, more targeted, um, but have, um, you know, considerable impacts and states obviously have a key role to play around the buses that their school districts use and that their transit agencies use. Great. Yeah, that's super helpful. And um, you also mentioned the, the equity piece and, and the need for states to do considerably more to prioritize equity in policymaking around transportation in general uh, and mobility. Uh, what does that really mean? And what are some of the recommendations that you offer for state policymakers who are wanting to uh, improve and or lead on this front? So we define equity somewhat broadly, given the fact that states around the country define equity in lots of different ways. And we wanted to make sure that we captured all that they're doing. But essentially, equity for us means um, serving communities and individuals that are generally either low income, communities of color, environmental justice communities, um, generally underserved communities that have historically either lack transportation investment or have been really negatively impacted by transportation investments that we've made in the past. If people are familiar with, you know, how we built a lot of our highway systems and where we've cited a lot of transportation infrastructure. Um, and so it's obviously very important that we make sure that the new investments that we're making in an electrified transportation future benefit these communities. Um, you know, EVs have huge benefits from you know, better air quality and cost savings from driving. And we don't want that to just go to the communities that are, you know, most able to adopt a new technology like EVs. And so we want, we want broad, you know, benefits from the transition. And so we, of course, um, evaluated states on their abilities to do that. And we actually upped the number of points to equity in this round from 10 to 17 and a half. Um, based on feedback from community groups that we got after our, our last edition. Um, and But some of the ways that we look at equity, um, they're around, are there incentive programs specifically designed for these communities, low-income communities, communities of color, and environmental justice communities, et cetera? Um, do existing incentives have, say, a higher incentive rate for these communities, or is there a specific pot of money set aside for them? Um, you know, it's important that, um, you know, obviously lots of different programs can be designed in different ways, but it's really good to have a really set aside money that's like these, this is the investments that we're making. So we also broadly support the um, White House's Justice 40 initiative um, and think that's a good framework 
that states can look at to, you know, better develop their own programs. Um, and this is both in terms of, you know, state taxpayer-funded programs as well as utility programs. So we look at what utilities are doing because um, a lot of states are requiring their utilities to take equity into account when they're making their investments. That's really helpful. And we'll link to the White House 40 initiative in the show notes so folks unfamiliar with that can acquaint themselves. It's a very uh, broad and all-encompassing approach to equity at the highest level of government. And the intent there is to really ensure it's uh, embedded in federal initiatives across the board, across all agencies. So that's great. You have kind of synchronized with that uh, broader effort underway. Um, one other piece to the puzzle, and then we'll we'll pivot to how uh, to Assemblyman Watts. You talk about the need for improved EV planning and optimization, particularly of the electricity grid, to accommodate future EV growth and charging needs. Certainly central to the electrification movement as a whole. Uh, so, talk a little bit more about why that's so important, and what states in particular should be doing to ensure that's really happening. Yeah, so I think, you know, people might obviously realize it, but I think it is worth putting a finer point on it that the the whole fueling of our transportation system is going to change pretty rapidly um, from, you know, liquid fuels that you might get at the gas station to now being able to just plug it into home or at a rest stop or at work or at a shopping center, et cetera. Um, and so utilities have traditionally not been as involved on the transportation side of things um, for this reason, um, but are increasingly doing so, both in terms of accelerating the transition with making investments in charging infrastructure, but importantly, as you mentioned, making sure that the grid is optimized for, for EVs. And a lot of this comes down to things like rate design and managed charging to make sure that EVs are charging when it's most optimal uh, for the grid. So not doing it, you know, right as everyone gets home from work, when everyone's, you know, turning on their air conditionings and, and cooking dinner, those are not the optimum times to charge EVs. And so, you know, making sure that we can handle all of the, you know, the huge load growth that's going to happen from EVs is really important. And of course, there are going to be needed to be more investments in the electricity grid. And obviously, that also is also needed um, for this just general transition to renewables um, and other forms of electrification that we're seeing. But, um, you know, it's important that the, that the utilities are planning for and optimizing for EVs because they are going to be such a large um, uh, growth in, in the load. Um, and states obviously have a key role to play um, because, you know, most of the regulatory system for utilities, for distribution utilities, at least, as happens at the state level with utility commissions. Um, so there's a very key key role for them to play to make sure that utilities are planning for EVs, um, are appropriately putting having them on the grid, and making sure that the that the distribution and transmission system is there um, to allow them to charge. You know when they need to be. Yeah, and there's a whole series of discussions around that topic that we could probably uh, take up the rest of the season <laughs> on. It's very in-depth and there's a lot of moving parts, but really great to see that prioritized in the scorecard and certainly agree there is uh, more emphasis needed in that space. Um, 
So let's pivot. Peter, thank you so much for all that helpful overview of the scorecard. Encourage folks to check out the scorecard. It'll also be linked in the show notes so you can really dig in and see where your state landed and see how your um, state is performing on transportation electrification. And uh, I want to pivot to Assemblyman Watts here. Um, And before we dive into the, the topic today, tell us a little bit about your background and what prompted you to go into politics and serve in public office. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Um, you know, I was born and raised here in Las Vegas, so I grew up here. I went to college here. Um, did got involved really early on in a lot of community service work and nonprofits, and so uh, kind of giving back to the community in some forms are always been really important to me. And then I actually spent time working with advocacy organizations on uh, issues related to voting rights and civic engagement. Uh, and then working on conservation issues, um, particularly um, issues related to water, which is an extremely scarce resource out here. And so, uh, you know, when when the opportunity came up to uh, not just be the person uh, asking folks that are elected to to make a change, but to be able to run for office and make the change myself, uh, I I jumped at it. And so um, now I'm in my my third term and have had the the honor of chairing committees that uh, look at natural resource issues. And this last session uh, was in charge of our committee uh, looking at energy and transportation issues. So um, you know, as I've gotten more and more involved in kind of the conservation world, you know, that that's my hobby is going out and enjoying the great outdoors. Um, and so it's it's a personal passion in many ways, both from just the things that I enjoy doing as well as um, you know, the issues that I enjoy working on. Well, that's awesome. And thank you for your service. It is uh, something more people need to be considering and, and going into. So really uh, admire folks who make that take that plunge <laughs> in addition to having a day job. <laughs> Um, you yeah. alluded to earlier the some of the more recent transportation policies that were adopted in the most recent session. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what happened and why why you think they're so important and sure to get you a higher score in the next uh, iteration of the of the scorecard. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, when I was elected in two thousand eighteen, um, we elected a new governor. Um, you know. You know Democrats were in control of both houses of the legislature and the governor's office. And, you know, we worked together to pass a lot of good policies, um, including policies to continue moving our electricity sector towards cleaner sources of energy. And so I was lucky enough to kind of be in the legislature at a time when we started to shift our attention after looking at the electricity sector for so long at how we could use that clean electricity to tackle some of our other sources of climate pollution and transportation really kind of came to the surface. So, um, you know, as Peter noted, we've made, we've worked with our utility and directed significant investments in electric vehicle infrastructure. We were one of the first states long before there were these federal funds to help support the development of uh, EV charging across our highway system. We created an electric highway program uh, and, and started to deploy charging stations across our state. Uh, in the last election, we got a new governor and had split governance. So Democrats are in control of the legislature, uh, but we had a Republican governor get elected. Um, and so, 
you know, some of the administrative action, right? The last administration had, um, had moved and adopted advanced clean cars one. Um, the new administration wasn't interested in moving to advanced clean cars two um, or advanced clean trucks, at least not at this time. You know, just recently, um, our, our governor withdrew Nevada from the U.S. Climate Alliance. Uh, so there were some challenges, but again, there's also some opportunities. We have uh, a, the Tesla Gigafactory here. So we have you know, advanced manufacturing. Um, we don't, the only energy resources that we have within our state are clean energy resources. And so, um, I got to work to figure out how can we seize kind of that economic opportunity? How can we do some things that are less of a mandate, uh, and more incentive based? Um, all of which are, are things that, um, you know, are, are included in that scorecard. So, I really worked on uh, two two main pieces of policy. One was to lead by example and set a policy for our state vehicle fleet to move towards zero emissions. Uh, and really just uh, the simplest way to do that is to do a life cycle cost analysis. You know, we budget in a very short-term way and try and figure out how to stretch those dollars that are in our budget for the next year or two years. But uh, those vehicles are going to be in our state fleet for 10 years, 100,000 miles. And when you look at the fueling savings, when you look at the maintenance savings, uh, when you factor all those things in, even if the sticker price is a little bit higher, um, uh, zero emission vehicles are now uh, competitive and actually probably a better investment. And that was before some of the new federal laws that allow us to uh, get the, what were tax credits um, for 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 state and local governments. So um, we basically tasked our state with taking that holistic analysis of those costs and benefits, and just set an aspirational goal that we want to get all of our state vehicles to have zero uh, emissions by the year 2050. Uh, the other policy I worked on was an incentive program, and it was specifically aimed at larger vehicles so not the passenger vehicles but medium and heavy duty vehicles you know they make up a very small share of the vehicles on our roadway but a really large share of the pollution that gets emitted from vehicles and so uh, I, I worked with advocates to craft a policy that creates kind of uh, tiered incentives based on the vehicle's size um, and it also tried to prioritize small businesses, um, minority-owned businesses, uh, investments in, in tribal communities and historically marginalized communities, uh, including um, school districts and, and transit. So uh, I think those are both um, policies that are going to really help take our our leadership to the next level uh, in terms of of uh, EV and zero emissions transportation policy. Absolutely. Yeah, those are two great examples of uh, kind of working with what you can work with and uh, getting something passed in spite of a, a, a split legislature and gov uh, governorship. But, um, you know, that's that's the case for a lot of states. So uh, for those out there listening, I think, you know, take some, take some notes and examples from uh, Assemblyman Watt's strategy here. Um, now, Nevada is a big state, and you have a lot of wide open spaces. I actually drove across your lovely state uh, this summer with my mother on the 
what is known as the loneliest highway in America. Um, and I can attest, it is lonely, but it's beautiful. <laughs> but there are very few services. However, I was impressed that the one uh, gas station that we stopped at, literally in the middle, right outside of Austin, Nevada, had an EV charger. And I was so excited. I was like, okay, this is hope for the future. Um, but anyway, you guys have to think about transportation in a very different way in light of that. Um, talk a little bit about some of the challenges and some of the approaches and solutions that you guys are working on to help overcome them. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. So we are, we're a very large state um, in terms of land mass, but we're also in terms of population, very urbanized. So most of our population really lives in the Las Vegas or Reno metro areas. Uh, so we do have this kind of issue uh, and those areas are as far apart as Los Angeles and San Francisco, right? So it's a, it's a seven hour drive. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do have to figure out how do we help support folks that are moving back and forth between our two major cities, as well as at a state level, how do we support people who are traveling across the state? How do we support those rural communities so that nobody's left behind? Um, and so, you know, again, we were one of the first states to start the uh, an electric highway program and put in charging stations across the state. Uh, I will say I recently became an EV owner myself. And, you know, uh, I was really, I was so happy. And I thought, wow, we, we were really ahead of the curve until I realized that, you know, it's a couple stations. As we know, sometimes, sometimes one of them doesn't work uh, or isn't at full capacity. Um, some of the charging speeds are a little bit lower. So there's still definitely a lot more we need to do to help make it easy um, where where you don't have potentially uh, five cars stopped in Austin and only, you know, two chargers available and, and folks are going to be at each one for a couple of hours. So mm-hmm. uh, to that end, in uh, 2021, uh, we passed legislation to direct the utility to make uh, a significant $100 million investment in uh, electric vehicle charging infrastructure. And so that's everything, again, from the uh, the wires, the, the distribution system, substations, transformers, everything that we need from a, kind of that core infrastructure to support additional charging, as well as to help um, deploy additional charging stations. And again, we tried to have a mix of how do we make this more available in uh, across all the different neighborhoods. Again, there was a, a kind of an equity component to make sure that all communities in our urban areas are going to have access to this. And then making sure that we're also supporting uh, that across the state. And then, again, we've been really lucky, thanks to the Biden administration's clean energy plan, um, the NEVI program. Uh, is supporting additional uh, EV charging across our highway network. And so our Department of Transportation uh, is currently working on a plan to deploy those funds so that we can uh, build this out. And again, the goal is to make it to to get rid of that range anxiety as people are traveling over the uh, hundreds of miles across our state uh, so that they can feel confident that they'll be able to uh, find a, a place where they can charge up. Yeah, I anticipate those funds are going to be instrumental for many, many states, uh, but particularly those like yours that have just these 
extensive highway systems and vast wide open spaces. And NEVI stands for the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program. It came out of the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law for those, again, who do not speak all the time in acronyms. <laughs> um, so I appreciate that, Sarah, because I can't even remember what all of them stand for sometimes. So. <laughs> well, I actually took a, a, a fun quiz the other day and I think I did pretty well. I did a lot of, um, I got a lot of acronyms correct, which I don't know what that means. It means I'm a big nerd is what it is. Um, but I'm proud to be a nerd. Um, so that's, that's great. And what it sounds like to me is that some, you know, this, this movement and the, the pieces are starting to all stack and really fall into place and really, I think, you know, unlock the full potential of, uh, Nevada's electric, future, which is very exciting. You mentioned the Gigafactory. There was also a recent announcement about an EV battery material producer, uh, Redwood Materials, and um, they also recycle batteries, which is very exciting. Um, They're going to expand their campus in Nevada and uh, use a $2 billion U.S. Department of Energy loan. So clearly the state is also very favorable for attracting these EV sector businesses. What does that mean for a state like Nevada? Oh, I mean, it's tremendous. Uh, So, you know, historically, uh, when our state was founded, we were reliant on mining. Um, And then uh, over time, we became reliant on tourism. Everybody knows the Las Vegas Strip. Tens of millions of people come to visit uh, every year. And that really is the economic engine uh, of our state. Unfortunately, when there's a recession, it's those those trips to Nevada, those trips to Las Vegas that are on the chopping block. And so uh, in our last kind of economic dips and recessions, uh, Nevada has been hurt, uh, hit hardest, really. And so everyone is looking for ways that we can diversify our economy so that we can weather some of those ups and downs. And, and to me, investment in our clean energy economy is is a no-brainer for that. Not only are we tackling challenges that we face with air pollution in uh, our urban areas, not only are we tackling the issue of climate change, but we're also creating good-paying jobs. You know, again, we don't have oil and gas, but we have tremendous solar potential. We have geothermal energy potential. Uh, there, there are uh, a lot of lithium deposits in the state that are being looked at. Uh, And then now we have uh, recycling. And so there's a lot of interest in closing that loop, too, because even where we have the only currently operating lithium mine in the United States, but that lithium then has to be shipped around the world to be turned into components to come back to the gigafactory to go into the final batteries. And so looking at how can we reduce the footprint of that um, and again create jobs right here by having that entire supply chain in place and then reduce our need for mining through that recycling process um, it is uh, you know again it's it's really exciting for those of us who are nerds for mm-hmm. um, you know conservation and for uh, this new emerging technology but also it's just uh, a huge win for our economy. Uh, and so that's one of the things that I think helps get bipartisan support. And, you know, I think as, as Peter noted, you know, manufacturers, the big auto manufacturers are now leaning into EVs. 
Uh, I don't watch uh, like network TV with commercials very much. The last time I, was, I did, I was in a hotel room and every car commercial I saw was for an EV. So um, we're seeing a lot more diverse support coming together because um, a lot of folks know that this is the direction that the economy is headed. And I think Nevada has a chance to be at the forefront of that. Yeah, I agree. And I actually was curious about some of the job creation opportunities and looked at uh, Tesla's website and noticed that the Gigafactory alone is, I mean, I didn't count, but there were hundreds of jobs listed for Sparks Nevada. And I mean, Sparks Nevada hasn't historically been, uh, you know, necessarily on the radar, but like if folks are looking for jobs, Sparks Nevada is where you want to be. <laughs> there are tons of jobs, and that's just one example. There, are, I'm sure this Redwood Materials announcement is going to lead to a ton of jobs as well. And um, yeah, it's just very exciting. And, and I think there's, um, you know, the transformation is underway, as you say, and it's uh, it's just great to know that that comes with a ton of economic development for um, for every state, not just Nevada. Um, so. Our time is winding down quickly, as I knew it would. Uh, these conversations, I always want to extend beyond the hour that we have, but uh, I want to expand the conversation to you both and talk a little bit about um, the need for collaboration. We've talked about the role that state agencies are playing, the need for uh, utilities to be at the table, and of course, other stakeholders, um, private sector and, and public sector alike. Uh, there are a lot of players that are impacting state transportation policy now. So, um, Peter, maybe coming back to you, are there some great examples that you can think of of collaboration that's happening at a meaningful level uh, to get all the players uh, working together and, and advance some of these policies? Yes. So we we looked at a, a little bit of this um, in terms of, of what states are doing and how it fits into their broader, especially planning efforts. Um, because as you said, there's a lot of work that needs to be done with lots of different stakeholders and between states, you know, people don't just stop driving at the border. <laughs> um, so it is important. And um, so for, for our planning metrics in particular, we looked at um, some of the state MOU memorandum of understandings that have happened um, where states are basically coming together um, you see this often regionally, so you see them in the Northeast, you see it in the West, you've seen it specifically also like on the West Coast with like the I-5 collaboration, um, where states are coming together and saying, you know, people are obviously going between our states. We also have, there's, it's mutually beneficial for us to promote EV, the EV economy in our states and to make those EVs available. Um, and so we've given partial credit to um, participating in those sorts of you know, joint planning efforts um, that um, really lay the, the the foundation for for the for the transformation that these states are seeing. Um, I think you brought up a great example that there definitely needs to be a ton of collaboration um, with utilities, um, both between you know we're seeing utilities work with fleet operators. Obviously, utilities are working a lot with their states and their state regulators. Utilities are working with each other across you know, across regions to make sure that the transmission is there for to support it. Obviously, utilities are going to be really involved in making sure that the EV charging needs to be in particular areas, you know, make sure that, you know, those rest stops that might be someone in the middle of nowhere have the, have the capacity to, to support that charging. Um, and so there's a lot of stakeholders to be played. We also didn't um, look specifically 
in terms of scoring around community engagement, but that's another really major area um, that we highlighted is something um, very important for, for states to be doing, to make sure that they're engaging with community groups, to make sure that their needs are met, um, and that they're also at the table alongside, you know, the utilities and the automakers um, and the EV manufacturers, et cetera. Absolutely. Really important point and uh, also ties back to the equity piece as well. Um, how about you, Assemblyman Watts? How is this playing out in your state? Are you seeing good collaboration? Is there more to be done? Yeah, um, absolutely. So, you know, for example, when I worked on this uh, legislation for medium and heavy duty uh, incentives, we were able to craft collaboration with, you know, folks that are uh, in the uh, EV sector that are building and deploying these vehicles. We worked with auto dealers. Uh, we worked with the trucking industry. Uh, and these are folks that have not all uh, agreed um, in, in, you know, specifically on these policy areas. Um, so brought those folks together as well as, you know, uh, the relevant state agencies, partnerships between our transportation department uh, and our uh, air pollution department. So, uh, you know, I think these partnerships are, are continuing to grow. You know, when we look at uh, some of the efforts that we've done on electrifying school buses here, it's really been an all-hands-on-deck effort. There were some policies and some pilot programs that uh, got started at our utility level uh, and that supported some of the charging infrastructure. Uh, and then, uh, you know, there were some uh, other federal funds for, uh, you know, from the VW settlement to support electrification. Then we had uh, recently even more funds from the, the EPA and uh, our largest school district was able to get the maximum award to begin deploying those school buses. So you're seeing um, state, local, uh, federal governments all coming together Um and it's really it's needed to uh, address all these new programs that are coming online and the, the scale of of these efforts. You know, our state has an infrastructure coordinator that's trying to help uh, connect the dots between all these different entities and make sure that we're all on the same page. Uh, so coordination is key, um, but it's also you know not everything is going to be 100 percent coordinated, and that's helpful too from the perspective of innovation and leadership having folks kind of um, uh, try something and see how it works so others can adopt it. Uh, our uh, Clark County, which is where Las Vegas is located, just adopted new zoning changes a few days ago that will uh, make sure all new and redeveloped uh, projects have EV charging in them. And so it might, you know, now that they're taking the lead on that, that actually could help pave the way for a statewide policy um, moving forward. So that's the type of collaboration, but also friendly competition that I think uh, we need to move forward. Yeah, that's that's a really good point and a great example. Uh, certainly local governments, municipal governments have a huge role to play in all of this as well. Um, and especially that permitting, zoning, and uh infrastructure piece they have a lot uh they have a huge role to play there so definitely should be at the table um so i think i'll end with a final question to you both and uh ask what advice would you give to state policymakers who are working on this issue in their state who want to advance evs and attract jobs and attract 
businesses uh, and get a good score on the <laughs> on their scorecard next year or in two years. Um, and uh, yeah, Peter, I'll I'll start with you. Sure, and I would just want to say uh, firstly that as as uh, someone wants mentioned the. There's been a lot of really recent activity that is just not being able to be captured. And Nevada is not the only state that this has come up with. And I think that just goes to show how rapidly these things are happening and things are changing and how much more work there's to be done. Um, obviously, we need to have you know our own cutoff for our own purposes, but you know, we're definitely gonna see, I think, in the next, you know, the next time we do this, there's gonna be, you know, a lot more stuff has been happened, has happened. And I'd say my advice for policymakers. Um, in addition to the things I mentioned around, you know, making sure that equity is incorporated and communities are engaged with and different stakeholders are taken into account, I would say, you know, make sure to focus in terms of advocacy around what the benefits TVs are. I mean, I think they're pretty, I think they're pretty clear, but I think there still needs to be some education to be done around, you know, all the myriad benefits um, and what it means for for your state and for the drivers in your state and your economy, et cetera, and air quality, especially. Um, and then also that, you know, the transition to EVs is not just about personal passenger vehicles. You know, this is about trucks. This is about, you know, vans. This is about buses. This is about, you know, fleet depots, you know, ports, if you have that, um, even like off-road vehicles, you know, rural vehicles, airport vehicles, warehouse vehicles, et cetera. You know, there's a lot, uh, you know, the transportation sector is pretty big. Um, it's now the largest in terms of emissions in the country. And so there needs to be work, the work needs to be done, you know, across the board. And, you know, we shouldn't solely focus on making sure that people are getting their passenger vehicles transition. Although obviously that's the biggest component and, you know, a very key and important area, but it usually gets the most attention. So we want to make sure that the other areas are taken into account as well. Yes, absolutely. Especially given their, as you mentioned earlier, their outsized impact on air quality and pollution and health. So very, very good point there. Um, what would you have to say to that, Assemblyman Watts? Oh, I think Peter gave a lot of really great uh, advice right there. I, I'd say if you're somebody that's looking to work on that uh, and you're in one of the, the leading states um, where everyone seems to be kind of aligned, then you need to go talk with folks like ACEEE and, and pour through those things to see um, where else you can get on the, the leading edge and keep innovating. And probably the main focus is making sure that there are strong equity programs in place to make sure no, but no communities are left behind as this transition uh, continues to accelerate. For folks who are looking to uh, build their leadership or kind of get on the map and get in that scorecard, uh, you know, I would say that uh, the the policy landscape is really changing quickly and the market is changing quickly. And so um, there are a lot of opportunities that aren't necessarily um, partisan um, where you can work with a lot of these kind of um, uh, stakeholders that might not, you know, you might disagree on some bigger picture climate change policy, um, you know, but Again, when you look at this, including from the health impacts, the economic impacts, uh, there are opportunities to really work together and to use um, carrots instead of sticks. So we're you know, creating some incentive programs, creating some voluntary programs, um, figuring out uh, some of those things that help provide that support, that financial support, that infrastructure um, are all ways that you can help 
clear the path um, for uh, for businesses and for individuals to procure EVs in your community. So I would just encourage folks to reach out to all of those different stakeholders. And you might be surprised that some of the um, ideas that you might be able to get folks aligned around um, and then, you know, try and try and craft some policy uh, that works uh, in that direction that you can get, um, you know, a, a solid base of support around and, you know, no matter how folks feel about the bipartisan infrastructure law or the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, right now those funds are becoming available. And I would just encourage every community to take advantage of the opportunity to get their slice of that pie and deploy it um, in some of these things that, at the end of the day, um, they're going to they're going to create jobs and they're going to create economic impact in their communities. So. Uh, that's my advice is how folks can kind of uh, find opportunities to move forward in, in landscapes that might be a little bit more challenging. Really, really great advice. And uh, candidly, I think that's advice that we all need to take to heart uh, in this world in which we live uh, that tends to be a little hyperbolic and uh, overly partisan. Uh, there are a lot of areas of coordination, collaboration, and alignment, as you said, um, in the middle. So... Thanks for that. And um, thank you both so much for this time today. I could keep going. This would be a great conversation over beers. We'll have to do that in the future. Um, next time I'm driving through Nevada, I'll be sure to uh, let you know, Howard. And uh, thank you so much to the for your time and to your respective your organization, uh, ACEEE, as well as to what you do as a legislator. It's, it's just really inspiring, the work you're doing. So with that, I will bid you both adieu. Thank you so much. Yep, thank you so much. And uh, Electrify, this is an Energy Innovation original podcast. Energy Innovation is a nonpartisan energy policy firm delivering high-quality research and analysis to help policymakers and regulators pursue a decarbonized energy future. You can find more information about Energy Innovation and the podcast at energyinnovation.org forward slash electrify this. And of course, please continue to subscribe, follow, and give us a review. If you like what you're hearing, it helps us expand our reach and our impact. Thanks, as always, to our sound engineer, Rowan Stigner, and the audio in in Salt Lake City. And thanks to our listeners and subscribers all over the world. I so appreciate you tuning in. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, and you're plugged in to Electrify This. Thank you.